Hello and welcome to Caged In Presents Coppola Connections, brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Patsilavas. This week again we go off the beaten path to look at another adjacent thing that is very important when talking about the Coppola family, uh, is uh, the new book by Ian Nathan, The Coppola's A Movie Dynasty. This is a fantastic chat. Um, I, I was lucky enough to get a preview copy of Ian's fantastic book, which is out now in all good and bad bookshops. Be sure to buy one from the good ones. It's a fantastic read. And um, yeah, hopefully listening to this conversation, you'll get a lot more of an insight and kind of the wealth of knowledge that Ian has. He's kind of, he's the man to go to. If you kind of, if you know Ian's work or if you don't, he's written books and all manner of things to do with film, whether it's Ridley Scott, Alien, um, Tarantino, Wes Anderson, Gilmo del Toro, the Coen brothers. He's 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 got all bases covered, and he's a fantastic writer, and he's a fantastic guest as well. I felt like I could have talked to Ian for many more hours, and I'm sure um, if he'll if he'll come back, I'll have him back on at some point, maybe discuss a film maybe to discuss another book if there is we can find some link to the coppola family in some way so all that's left to do is to head to the napa valley make sure that the white wine is cold and the red wine is room temperature make sure that you've got a nice pot of bolognese sauce on the boil ready for the family to enjoy and have a conversation about the greatest film family of all time as we make some Coppola connections. As a fledgling Coppola scholar, I'm thrilled today to be joined by The Real Thing, a man who has quite literally written a book on that subject. As this podcast argues, the greatest film family of all time. It's, of course, journalist, documentary talking head, blogger, and writer of many books, including aforementioned The Coppola's in Movie Dynasty. Ian Nathan, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. It's very nice to be talking about the book. Now it's out, so it's you know it's it's, it's quite exciting. I mean, uh, you, you live in your head for a long time when you write a book, and you've got no outside force to kind of interact with, and sort of the relatives you bore. So it's kind of it's it's a great release when the book finally comes out, and you get to talk about it, and it becomes more real in a strange way <laughs> once you, you're you're live, and it's kind of speaking to people who actually read it. One one of the things, like, I guess I really wanted to know, like, especially when it came to writing a book about the Coppola family, is, like, with a wealth of kind of stories and almost like books out there, was it a daunting prospect to kind of tackle what, what yeah, as somebody who kind of almost have a collection, whether it's like uh, Michael Schumacher or Peter Cowie books that are kind of, like, dedicated to certain films, was it, was it ever daunting to you to kind of, like, tackle that subject as well absolutely uh, the first place you get to is daunting it's it's <laughs> and usually it's some subject as big as as coppola that you're you're yeah you're, you're almost dissuaded from your path you know it's it's like 
great minds have been there. Great writers have been there. You know, Coppola himself is a wonderful sort of self-biographer. Every interview he's ever given and documentaries and all the kind of the stuff that's out there sort of makes you fear. Uh, and you think, I'm just going to be treading in, in other people's footsteps. I'm going to be telling the same old stories. And you have to kind of get beyond that and use sort of certain kind of frames of mind to do it. So I, one of them is that you know, no one has read me on the Coppola's, yes. you know, for good or bad. This is my take on them. Um, there hasn't been a fresh book on them outside of sort of academic circles. I believe you may know better, but I believe for a number of years mm -hmm. now. So it was a chance to bring them up to date and look back on the many great films from today, from you know, yeah. 2021 and the world we're now in and the, and the movie world we're now in. So that kind of gave me, me some freedom. And working with the publisher, and, and they should take some credit, they were much more a driving force behind doing The Family and very much doing Sophia alongside Francis and looking at them from the idea of fathers and daughters and generations. And as you said, this, this incredible filmmaking family and trying to give it a theme. And the theme, it's a very obvious one if you think about the Coppola, is his family. Yeah, yeah. And he's made films about it. It's been the driving force of his life. And it's very much the driving force of Sophia's life and career as well. So I think, hopefully, I've kind of come at it with a slightly unusual and, uh, approach and sense of trying to interpret the life and films through that idea yeah. of, of family and connection and you know, where it's taken them. How did you go about kind of like, narrowing it down because as somebody who's like has, has kind of started a podcast looking at the entire Coppola family like and like the the start of your book has the family tree and it's almost like looking at it is again a daunting prospect because you start going right so you've got Talia Shire you've got Nicolas Cage you've got like however you want to look at it you've got Jack Schwartzman you've got Jonathan Schwartzman like yeah, yeah was it was it a thing of like I really need to keep it focused to this kind of core group and not kind of look to all them peripheries well what some of it's it's, it's practical um, <laughs> you're given um you know a certain amount of latitude by a publisher but they're not going to give you endless pages and endless words you know there are limits <laughs> to what you can write so you have to be disciplined at the level and the sense that discipline then shapes your, your writing and and your approach I kind of knew from the outset, simply because I was really into them both, that I wanted Francis and Sophia to be the backbone of the yeah. story, because that's where the films lie. That's you know, they are directors, and in a sense, I'm, I'm I'm better at writing about directors than I am actors uh, and, and other kind of artists. And then I thought, you know, in my head at the beginning, I was going to do lots of stuff on the the family, huge amounts, sprawling saga. But it became quite quickly apparent that if you're going to write the story of The Godfather and tell Nicolas Cage's life story, <laughs> you need about four different books yeah. at work. You know, as you say, it's, it's really hard. So I had to kind of program the book along certain lines, and define it. And then once you were telling the stories, those other characters, the other family members, sort of almost naturally folded into the main story. So Talia is obviously there a little bit at the beginning because she's, she's his sister and she's in the family. But she really comes into the book in terms of the Godfather and yeah. you know, trying to get into her brother's film when he didn't want her in it <laughs> and all those stories. So that's in the, the ideal place to introduce her. Then obviously Nicolas Cage 
comes into it with the Cotton Club and yeah. the point he sort of joins the circus yeah. and his relation. And then, you know, J- Jason Schwartzman, you know, those later on with Sophia's work. So it, it sort of was a natural way of doing it in the end that I would concentrate on Francis and Sophia. They were my story, but you would feed off. And I hope you kind of keyed into this a little bit. There's actually the, the other main character in the book is Eleanor. Yes. Although she's kind of a ghost in a way, because it, it doesn't sort of tackle her head on. For me, she's almost the hero of the story. Yeah. Because I think she has done more than anyone and endured more than anyone to hold it all together and to keep the engine going and to deal with Francis, which alone is a lifetime's work. But also she's her own person and her own artist and has been frustrated, I think, along the way and fought against it. And I, I found her stories very moving. Yeah. And she's, again, we talk about sources and books out there. Mm-hmm. Her diaries are probably the best biographies there are mm-hmm. on, on, on both Sophia and Francis. She's a wonderful writer yeah. and really precise and detailed. So I loved all that. It's always beautiful to see as well that Eleanor uh, would have like shot a lot of like uh, behind the scenes like features for a lot of like even if it's like Sophia's I think it's uh, Marie Antoinette like she's got a kind of like documentary that runs alongside it and it it always comes back to that thing you said it comes back to family and I think that is like the perfect angle to to take yeah on on a book about about yeah I I always. I, I always make the joke on the podcast that it's basically like this crime family like, is this kind of thing of like, and you do have that like Michael Corleone moment almost of uh, Francis handing over the baton of the kind of like uh, the family dynasty to, yeah. to, to Sophia in, in the, in the late nineties. And I think there's, there's that amazing um, clip at the Oscars, I think when she won for uh, lost in translation, you kind of see, the ecstatic joy on his face yeah. of like how how he was um yeah just just bowled over and like one of, yeah one one of the things I wanted to kind of get your opinion on is obviously is is the idea of nepotism in the Coppola family are you one to believe that it is like this this dirty thing or is it that kind of I don't know like almost you just want to see your children and your family succeed what? it's it's an interesting point um. I kind of saw it, as you say, it's a little bit like they are a crime family and this is the family business. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost like she had to become a director. She had no other choice. She was brought into the family business. That's what you did. And that's what Roman has done. And and you can't escape it. Also, I think art runs in genes. I think the talent, you know, Carmine was very talented and back and, you know, the grandfathers were very talented, you know, Francis' grandfather. And that came down into Sophia and Roman, extraordinarily talented. And talent will out, you know, it has to get out and do it. Mm. I think obviously having Francis Ford Coppola as your father is a good <laughs> thing if you want to get into the film industry. It's helpful. And his name and Zoetrope, you know, produced her films, produced Roman's films, yeah. and have helped with Eleanor as well. So, yes, that's certainly true. But I think nepotism sells it all short. Yeah. I think it's it's almost like an instinct that they, they kind of had to do this. And you know, family is so important to, to Francis that even the shooting of the films were kind of family enterprises. He brought in the children at a very early age. They were running about the sets as toddlers. 
yeah. almost. And literally, almost, they were kind of running about the sets. Godfather Part Two. There's young Sophia scampering around. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's, it's a world you can't even escape from. What mm. would have been more surprising, I think, is Sophia had gone off to become a physicist or, yeah. or a doctor, <laughs> and and did, did that. We were going, what the hell's going on? And um, and she's so different. And this was very clear in the, in, in doing the book. She's so much her own person, mm-hmm. and she escaped the daddy's girl thing very quickly. So I think she could see it ahead of anyone. She worried about it. And I think she almost was put off by the yeah. fact everyone would call her, oh, your daddy's girl. It's the only way you got to pick up a camera. And actually, very quickly, version suicides into Lost in Translation. We forgot. Yeah. We, we kind of went, oh, she's our own filmmaker, and she's doing her own thing. And a very different kind of filmmaker, mm-hmm. too. How would you like kind of uh, describe those differences? Because there is that core, like thing that you mentioned again, and it, it comes back to family that they both have these, and somewhat like whether it's uh, that story that um, Gene Hackman's character has in the conversation about about being a sickly child is like lifted straight from Francis's life, and then you look at Sophia's films, and they all just feel autobiographical about what they've kind of been through but where yeah where do you see like that kind of i don't know the 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 differences in what they do like and again both amazing at kind of adapting like uh uh, books or kind of yeah other works yeah and yeah you're right on that level that the main subject in both their films is themselves yeah. <laughs> to, to a degree. They, they, they kind of, and I, I think, I think Francis especially would say that is as it should be. Every artist gives of himself yeah. to the work and you know, it, it, incredible you know, historical thing that he didn't want to make the Godfather, that he resisted it and hated it when it's absolutely an outpouring of his own heritage and yeah, yeah. ideas and textures and everything about it speaks of Francis Coppola that you think, okay, how did that happen? <laughs> but that kind of shows you what an artist he is. Um, with Sophia, certainly, I think she's in a way even more a personal, a filmmaker. She's even more sort of identified with her characters. And, you know, she, you know, Lost in Translation is a very autobiographical film. This is the version of Suicide. As to an extent, is Marie Antoinette. I think all of her, uh, certainly her first phase of films are about hotels, living in hotels, which obviously she did yeah. for a lot of her life and the world she lived in, which was both privileged and very lonely. And I think that comes out. I think also, and I hope this comes across in the book, I think a lot of her characters are based on her mother yeah. and her mother's loneliness. I think the Scarlett Johansson character in, in Lost in Translation is both Sophia and it's her mother to a degree. And, you know, things that maybe she was not conscious of. You know, All artists are subconscious on many levels. Where they differ, Francis and Sophia, is obviously male and female yeah. comes into it. There is a, a male tendency in Francis' work. Um, there aren't many female lead characters in his films. Peggy Sue got married and a few others, but he, he's a male-dominated world, and Sophia is, is the opposite. Um, also, she likes harmony in terms of the textures and also in terms of how the films are made. 
there's no one no one shoots action on a Sofia Coppola film that's too loud <laughs> yeah they just get going so the only, only you can only shout if it's required by the script no one else is going to raise their voice it's going to be a harmonious world whereas Francis it's just you know if he's not making a film in a literal storm he's got to make a film in a kind of self-induced storm yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the chaos creates the art and it, and it sort of feeds into it so apocalypse now you know became a masterpiece because it was this kind of vietnam to make and he and he self-generated a lot of that well yeah yeah even whether he and then even on to like uh, one from the heart where it's like he had this opportunity to make this small contained thing it still came like spiraled out of control and became this like ridiculous thing where he's making the the las vegas strip on a soundstage at zoe trope studios and like i find all all of that like fascinating this kind of like he feels like a director who needs to be like all chips on the table we could yeah. like, go in for broke otherwise it's not going to happen and obviously recently we've just had the news that what he's self-financing his kind of passion project that he's had for like the last however many years and it's like he's still got that spark in him at the, the age of like 82 yeah, he, he, I mean, he's marvellous, just in, in terms of, you know, a, a director, he's a marvellous director, and he's a marvellous character, and he's a marvellous subject to write about, because he is, uh, you know, he is the fury of, of, of the artist out there, but he's the Italian man who wears his heart on his sleeve and is all passion. So, it, it, in a way, you know, his thought is incredibly different from him. And, yeah, he'll go into any project probably with the ideal of doing something small and contained. And the passion wells up and the opportunity wells up and the, and the, the gambler in him wells up. That if yeah. he's not taking the biggest risks on the biggest stage, he's not himself. I mean, yeah, they're great sort of historical stories of him and George Lucas, you know, couldn't be more, more opposed, yet became great friends. Yeah. And Lucas, it's like control, discipline, you know, store the money, you know, small increments, do things that are commercially sensible. Francis is just charge ahead. Let's do it. Let's spend money we haven't got. Let's risk the whole family enterprise, risk the, the, the kind of the houses and the and the, the business to create the art. And it's a kind of romance in that. And as you say, 82 years old, he's still doing it. Megalopolis is going to put the everything on the line to make it, like, you yeah, know, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, vineyards. Yeah. And I'm sure Eleanor is like, saying, excuse me, Francis, are you sure about <laughs> this? But uh, it's wonderful. And I hope, you know, I, I, from what I understand, it's, it's a huge idea about building the utopian society and, and the forces against that. And he wants to build his own version of New York using CGI. Um, so, I mean, I, I do hope he gets to do it. And, it's, you know, it sounds incredible. But it's also that kind of thing where the one he'll never get to make is also a romantic mm. idea. This yeah. kind of project's always just ahead of him. It, it, it almost feels like he's got that same spirit of packing his family up in a car and driving across, like, America to make the rain people, right? Like, it's still, like, no matter how famous and, like, like the kind of accolades he's got that, like, yeah, he's got he's got that spirit in him is, is, is a beautiful thing to behold. So I wanted to, like, rewind a bit and where, like, where did the kind of germ of the idea of this book come from? Like what made you tackle it? Um, it's usually it's, it's uh, several things come together, different ideas. One was, um, obviously, I got into writing books, having been in an empire, and I moved into to being a film author. And 
sort of staked out a territory of doing directors. Um, as I said earlier, I, I find them easier to write about. I, the marriage of sort of the technical side with the artistic side, and some, you know, and the personal side as well, uh, just seemed to appeal to me. And I don't, you know, and and a certain amount of it comes from practical decisions. You know, your publisher talks to you about potential subjects yeah. into the future, and they will know things about the marketplace as well. So they will come and say, well, X or Y will sell very well in Spain and France. You know, foreign sales are important. You know, there's, there's kind of like a, a boring kind of yeah, company yeah. <laughs> element to it, finances. So that was part of it as well. Um, really, I think I got very engaged with the idea once we started talking about doing Sophia and Francis together. Like you said at the beginning, doing Francis alone worried me. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I thought, well, this is a guy who's, you know, there are some brilliant biographies out there. You know, I'd read them and I thought, how can I better them? Um, and I didn't want to do a kind of definitive Francis biography book because you know years in the making and all those things and and there's a kind of wariness about how much you involve him and his stage and clearances so once we got this idea of putting Sophia and Francis together and doing the family it made sense to me and that's when I got excited and that's when what you do is then if you put proposals together and have a chapter breakdown and you write a couple of chapters I think my samples were on um bit of apocalypse now and i did a bit of lost in translation i could do show them both yeah. and of course they change completely once you get you know, your, <laughs> ch- your samples are completely transformed once you're writing it and what was a very interesting thing with this book as opposed to any other book i've written is that very early on i got a voice for it mm-hmm. and it was a slightly more novelistic voice than perhaps the stuff i'd written in the past it was very much a story yeah and that makes sense. And that came from the couplets. That came from the inside outwards. That once you wrote about this passionate Italian family, you had to apply a kind of passionate pace to it. Yes. You had to you know, give it this sort of sense of a world unfolding as quick as it can possibly unfold. And that was very freeing. Once I kind of got that voice, I kind of knew how to write the book for good or bad. And you, know, you had to then keep it going. You know, the difficulty with, with with Francis is once you've done kind of everything up to Rumblefish, you know, they're all fantastic stories. You kind of get into, you know, um, obviously Cotton Club is a great story and, and Peggy Sue, but once you're in Jack and things, you're like, how do you keep this all going? And, yeah. you know, when he's just mainly doing things for the money. But in the <laughs> end, it, it wasn't a problem. It, you know, they, because I had this tone of voice because I had Eleanor and, and all these other subjects as part of it, it seemed to come quite easily. And I guess like the the thing that your book is fortunate about is like obviously doing a just a biography on Francis Ford Coppola, like going through that career, it can can somewhat end on a whimper. Do you know what I mean? To kind of go from like yeah. somebody who kind of came out the, the gate and even like later on, there are still interesting stories, like we've kind of touched on one from the heart. It, that like that kind of saga feels like it's again, yeah. it's something that could be a book alternate set all to itself like that kind of idea of he finally made the studio and then kind of gambled it all on this one film and then i think it was boyd hilton when he was on this podcast said like it feels like francis ford coppola never really recovered from that period of his life like like creatively or kind of personally to some degree of just like kind of you know achieving the dream and then losing it also quickly um 
So what does the research for a book like this look like for you? Um, it, it's, it looks quite dull because <laughs> actually it's a, a lot of reading. Um, and obviously I was writing during a pandemic. Um, so I couldn't get to some of the libraries that I've used in the past. There's libraries in California and other places. So that was all kind of a little bit off the table. And actually, thankfully, a lot of the places I do use and have used in the past and different things had opened up a kind of an online facility to sort of get around the pandemic problems. And there are fantastic libraries of sort of newspaper cuttings. So once you've sort of done the Schumachers and the Cowies and you've read all those books, once you've read Eleanor's diaries, and that became a very important resource. Obviously, you watch all the films again. Um, then you kind of go into the newspaper articles and, and the reviews and the things for the time. And there's a kind of, um, I don't know, a sort of way you sort of, everything expands outwards. So you read one interview and it suggests another interview. Yeah. <laughs> and then you get sort of weird tangential things that bring riches that you hadn't expected. And that's one of the challenges. When you come to subjects like The Godfather or Apocalypse Now, and even Lost in Translation and Marie Antoinette, there's so much being written, you know, and terrific things written and very detailed things written. So you're looking for the tangential element to throw in, to sort of throw it open yeah. and to bring different. So I read Sam Wasson's book on the making of Chinatown. Amazing. And that's got a lot of fantastic things in it about that time and Robert Evans and Paramount that I could then sort of tuck back into the Coppola side of things. So Evans became a very important character in the book too. And then through that uh, emerged an idea of, uh, subtextually almost, that it's a Hollywood story. Mm -hmm. And what you hopefully see is how Hollywood changes. It goes obviously from the great sort of movie brat era and all that kind of chaos into the 80s and 90s where the studios reasserted themselves and it was the era of the blockbuster and Francis was almost sort of uh, alien to all that. Then into the kind of the, the early 90s, uh, into the 2000s with the indie scene. Yeah, yeah. And the new generation of filmmakers of which Sophia was part and parcel. So you, and right at the end, although it's only just sort of starting, streaming sort of happens. You know, yeah. On the Rocks was an Apple film. And that money was just sort of changing. And you see what Roman is doing. There's kind of a, a move into a different kind of thing. So it was almost a subtext, but I read quite a lot on just Hollywood history through those times and then you pick up yeah, yeah. you know where lucas was and how uh, you know finian's rainbow was made <laughs> and, and all that kind of backstory and learned so much i, I wasn't aware of yeah I, um, I always like to look when like it's somebody's birthday to see if there is obviously the podcast is copla connection so like is there is there yeah. a connection to that person just so i can like i don't know wheel out for happy birthday to jack nicholson and I think like, on yes. that, I found out that like Francis Ford Coppola had done re like uncredited rewrites on like a Roger Corman film that stars yeah, Jack, he, he, like, like that stars Jack Nicholson or something like he that. He did, he did. He he actually shot. He finished it for for Corman. Yeah. Corman had a habit of starting <laughs> a film, getting it all going, shooting three quarters of it, then going off and starting the next one, you know, with the next lump of money, and then would leave his sort of second AD behind <laughs> to finish it. 
and that was Coppola on on I can't remember the name of it, but it's a it was a kind of I think it was Jack Nicholson in the, in the Pacific Surf. They're shooting up a big sur, and Nicholson tells his story. It's in the book about the fact that he felt he was being drowned by Coppola as he kept throwing him <laughs> back in for another take. It's a Roger Corman film. And he was in this full regalia with a kind of saber and all this kind of stuff. The copper just goes, ah, oh, he's just grouching. He's just being a kind of an old moaner. It was no one was at risk. Um, but they did. They did make a film together. And there were times. I mean, Nicholson was one of the people who were in the frame for, for The Godfather. Uh, a bit of Michael Corleone, maybe. Um, this, the thinking seemed to be it was more likely Tom Hagen at one point. Yeah. That's Nicholson. I think he read for it. I, I don't think it's a case of he nearly got it. I think there were a lot of people reading. And... You know, a lot of names in the hat at that point. But he, he does circle the world, Nicholson. So, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely... I mean, Coppola is so present in film from about 1968, really, to the end of the 90s. You know, uh, maybe kind of a bit, a bit earlier than that, he sort of you know, becomes a bit more of an elder statesman, but he's connected with everything that was going on. Spielberg, Lucas, you know, all of that. Yeah. You know, he saw Star Wars. I mean, he's intimately connected with the creation of star wars yeah so i i always i always pose this question to a lot of my guests on 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 the podcast when we deep dive into a film and it's it, it's a really throwaway like kind of silly question but it is that thing of like if they had to pick someone from the coppola family to kind of like keep their filmography and get rid of it and then like it, <laughs> it always and get rid of the the rest of the family's filmographies we always it always kind of like so many times i've had that conversation about the Francis Ford Coppola almost being this like nexus point of cinema and like if you kind of yeah. take him out of cinema history you don't get Star Wars perhaps because it's kind of like there's that great story of how uh, I think it was like George Lucas won a competition right at UCLA to to, to go on set at, at Warner Brothers and that's like uh, Francis Ford Coppola was like here's another guy who's under the age of 50 on set who, Absolutely. Who's, who's bearded <laughs> I, I like the look of him. Like, come and join me. Do you want to like join 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 this kind of ragtag band of of people? Like, I've stolen a load of film. We're going to shoot this movie across America. Do you want to do you want to do a documentary? I'll, I'll I'll find out a way for you to get paid. And it's like that is like that is the birth of George Lucas as a filmmaker right then, right? Absolutely, and without Coppola being the driving force in all of that. None of that really happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certain things would have happened. Uh, you know, Freakin and those guys were all operating a bit separately. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in true terms, Cobra isn't a movie brat because he's first generation. The movie brats came in with a sort of second wave, and yeah. Coppola was, was was first. He was already working in the studios. He was on Finian's Rainbow when yeah. Lucas walked in and, and watched him <laughs> at work. Fred is ten musical. And Hanky's so key. I mean, he's the catalyst in all of that. And if you take him out, then I don't think you even get Spielberg or Scorsese to the same level. Mm-hmm. Maybe they would have happened, but he was such a driving force in wanting to change things. And The Godfather was so yeah. important in terms of it was a commercial success. If it had been a flop, you don't get the movie brats. You don't get the auteur era. Yeah. It would have folded yeah. because The Godfather was a hit and all the studios went, we need some of that. We've got to bring in these talented young guys to create films like The Godfather. And The Exorcist as well, to a certain extent. But it was absolutely The Godfather that drove that. 
And it was, of course, George Lucas who forced Coppola to take The Godfather. Yeah. He didn't want to do it. He was just like, I'm an artist. I want to make personal films about my life. And and there's Lucas going, they're locking in the gates of the company. The bailiffs <laughs> are coming. You've got to take the job, Francis. Yeah, because there's that like Ill, ill-fated, is it like the director's company that was supposed to be Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, William Friedkin, and Peter Bogdanovich. No, it, yeah, it's the Deckers Company comes slightly afterwards. That yes. was uh, again, but a product of, of the Godfather and and yeah. you know, the, the start of it. That was Friedkin, Bogdanovich, and Coppola, and that was it was a kind of paramount idea. We were thinking, well, if we're going to have auteurs doing it, let's have our own little stable of auteurs. We'll give them a load of money, and they'll hopefully come back with. Yeah, you know, these kind of independent style films that would become great hits. Because uh, all these companies that they formed were a disaster because they're they're all egotists <laughs> and, and filmmakers and artists at odds with each other. So the original Zoetrope, which is a fabulous story, there's, a, there's almost like a novel to be written about that yes. first era at Zoetrope in San Francisco. There's a wonderful documentary. Yeah, I think you've probably it. seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good documentary about the craziness of what they were doing. You know, people sleeping under the desks because they were homeless and all these kind of mad things. I love that the focal point of that is that they had a cappuccino machine. That was like oh, the yeah. kind of the most like state of the art thing that they had and kind of like put them head and shoulders above every other studio. It was like, they got, they're making cappuccinos over at Zoetrope. Yeah. <laughs> they saw the future. They were into coffee. <laughs> and no, and it, it's kind of wonderful, but it's, it's chaos because yeah, in the end, you've got the inmates running the asylum. And they're all kind of wanting to pursue their wonderful visionary projects, but no one wants to run the accounting department. No one wants to run the kind of thing like a studio. And that's why the studios reasserted themselves because they had the the business acumen. They needed the money, these guys. Yeah, Yeah. They had all the ideas, but they had no money because Francis kept spending it on cappuccino makers and editing suites and swimming pools and all sorts of nonsense. But um Without that, though, you, what was wonderful about that whole era and his story is, is the mix. It's You get that incredible auteur spirit and drive and passion mixed with these vulnerable studios who needed content and work and needed something to kind of happen. And because they came together, then you got The Godfather you know, right through to Apocalypse Now and Heaven's Gate when it all kind of collapsed. <laughs> um, so, like, what is, yeah, what is some of the, like, more kind of off the beat not not necessarily like the the highlights of the book but like the the stories that you like kind of go like i'm proud i kind of eke that out like stuff that like really excited you when you came across it um one of the things as i mentioned earlier was was definitely Eleanor's story and and trying to pull that out and to to keep her present because i you know the more i read of her and the more I, i kind of read about her uh, I got very sympathetic to her and I thought she was very important. She wasn't just the mother and the wife. Yeah. She is a, a guiding artistic spirit. Um, I loved, and you know, it's kind of, it really kind of gave it a, a godfathery feel was going backwards and finding who the grandfathers were yeah. and the stories of immigrants coming in, which obviously are replayed in, in the films, you know, the Ellis Island sequence in Godfather part two is a homage to Coppola's own grandfathers, both who came in from Italy. Yeah. So that connection was, was wonderful. Obviously one of the central threads of, of my reasoning um, was I, I think the defining event in his life is, is the polio and being basically bed bound for a year. And that's when he becomes 
you know, the director to come. Uh, I think that was was fantastic. Then he's just getting into uh, sort of down the line, because once you sort of get past doing The Godfather and doing the conversation of Godfather Part 2 and Apocalypse Now and trying your best to bring uh, <laughs> freshness yeah, yeah. and bigger to those stories, which are very well told, and, and coming at it with kind of excitement. It was then looking at the, the later films and, and sort of trying to understand him in, in the prism of those films. I, I very much enjoyed writing about Peggy's Who Got Married, mm-hmm. which I think is a really great film and a really different film from him. And then, yeah, he sort of denies it a bit. And he says it's just a studio job, but it really is one of his films because, you know, it's about an era. And I think that's his era. And he's sort of doing a different thing about history and, and memory I, I, and all I, those things. I love that it's, it's his one of like the, you know, like a lot of those directors, like a lot of the 80s directors were doing their, 50s film whether it's like bob zemeckis yeah. with like the back to the future and stuff like that and like uh, yeah I, I love that francis is a is a bit weird and he let nicholas cage do that voice for one like do you know what I mean it is yeah, like just... this this time travel like almost it, and it feels almost like a like a kind of 60s like 50s film like uh an old yeah. like disney film somewhat like a kind of freaky friday style stuff I, yeah i i love Piggy. i i i've i've got a real soft spot for 80s Coppola and kind of like uh, yeah like yeah the outsiders and rumblefish I think are like fantastic and stuff like that but um yes yeah, it's, it's a real it's I think that stuff's just just as interesting and like you were saying with kind of being worried to write about like that that chunk of the 70s stuff like as, as a podcaster it's I get that daunting feeling and I've, it's the reason yeah. I've kind of put off covering apocalypse now yeah that that run of films is is the thing that what can be said that hasn't already been said yeah. basically is is a, that's why like i'm like I'm, I'm more excited like let's talk about one from the heart like nobody yeah. really talks about that film like and it's probably like just as interesting a story as apocalypse now and like it's it's instead of i don't know kind of being out in the wilderness and going mad it's then becoming almost this agrophobic yeah maniacal man in a in a in a trailer trying to direct a film like that and it's yeah it's, it's like a, that hangover from making apocalypse now and made him go the complete opposite way yeah very much yeah he went from the outdoors film to the completely <laughs> indoors film i don't think anyone can miss that um, you know, I love the, uh, there's a great, I mean, yeah, I'm not trying to give you, teach you to sort of suck eggs, but yeah, there's a great story in pre-Godfather Coppola. The, the, the story from Corman through to, uh, yeah, Rain People. It's a wonderful, and he'd done so much. Yeah. We, we didn't think kind of he was almost invented with the Godfather. And, and I suppose on, on a larger scale he was, but actually he'd won an Oscar already for Pat. For the, you know, the screenplay for Patton, which he'd just been given this job. You know, he wasn't an expert on Patton. He was just thought, because he'd written on Paris is Burning and gone to Paris for his terrible bloated film. I didn't know how to watch that. I wouldn't recommend that highly. <laughs> He's only a, one of the screenwriters. It's a great bloated thing. Got some good bits in it, but it, it's, it's kind of, it's not a great movie. But he'd been sitting in Paris writing this terrible kind of Hollywood historical drama. He came back. And you know, studios are so short-sighted. They, you know, they look at his CV and go, "Oh, he writes about military stuff, army history. Do you want to write patent?" So he gets given. He goes, "No, I don't want to write patent." They go, "Here's fifty thousand dollars." He go, "Okay, I'll write about patent." <laughs> and 
Of course, he does a brilliant job with Patton. He brings on these kind of meta ideas about the hawkish general, you know, that wonderful opening of the film with George E. Scott kind of just talking to the audience. Yeah, yeah. And that's all Coppola. It's all him that sort of comes up with that. And I, I kind of really enjoyed that, that sort of stage of the career where he's sort of, you know, you're a big boy now. You know, he's, he's such a exciting film. It's like a French New Wave film. Mm-hmm. And he's just out there. And there were so many things about that I didn't realise. They were just kind of on the loose in New York shooting it. Yeah, and, and there's the whole sequence in a, in a department store. And one of the things I said, they had no permission apart from they had to shoot at lunchtime, but they weren't, <laughs> they were going to keep the customers in. They weren't going to tell the customers. So they, all the cameras were in carrier bags and things. Amazing. And because the, they were doing a chase sequence, like running downstairs, they kept bustling into, into kind of poor old customers, this New York department store. And apparently a fight broke out, the lead actor. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of like, they had to fight back because they were just shooting. It. I'm sure. Couple loved all that, you know, all that kind of freshness and vibrancy. But I think that, that that really kind of intrigued me. That you know, it's it's like you have to do the big elements. You can't avoid them. Yes. You've got to kind of knock the barnacles off those stories and go into the Godfather and just tell it. But it's a chance to sort of tell the other side of the story and to tell people what you know how we got to the Godfather. You know, what had already happened, what he already knew, what was already driving him. I think it's really important. And it was really kind of exciting because you sort of find out who he is far more, I think, through the past. Yeah. And, and he, he always suffers from that, like, uh, Kubrick thing when people, like, don't, don't, don't take in the thing that, like, like you said, like, like Kubrick is known for the Warner Brothers years and it's kind of anything yeah. pre that. It's like, oh, what are that? Well, Paths of Glory? Like, what's that? Like, even like Spartacus. Is it, yeah, is it Spartacus? Yeah. They yeah. kind of like, a, a tr- do you know what I mean? It's almost like, it's not yeah. seen as a film de Kubrick. It's kind of like, yeah. And it's, I think, I think, I think Francis Ford Coppola in that era. Is it, uh, you're a big boy now. Is it Roman Coppola who plays the, like, the baby in like some of those scenes as well? I love, I, um, I vaguely remember reading think, that somewhere. Or I think it must be Gio, um, yes. the oldest one who, who, who died because because of the, the, the ages they are. Because I think Roman is born in Paris. Yes. When he was writing Paris is Burning. So Roman was, and there's always been something very European about Roman, the films he makes and the kind of person he is and hanging out with Wes Anderson and doing their quirky films. I always think the fact that he was born in Paris had sort of a, a strange influence on the kind of the, you know, artist he became. Well, one of the things I love about like looking through like the other books you've written is that there is this kind of like, it's almost, and it kind of, it, 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 it tickles me that like, no matter who you've kind of written about, there is always these kind of, um, connections to the Coppola with with a lot of them whether it is Wes Anderson and like I think Roman Coppola is like a big part of like of what Wes Anderson does and obviously like his second film is the breakout film for Jason Schwartzman it's like one of the most like personal and like moving films of his career is co-written by Roman Coppola and like has done a lot a lot of like second AD stuff whether it's the life of quite Steve Sissou or yeah, all you've got to do is look at the Darjeeling Limited and realise that Adrian Brody's character is basically playing an avatar for Roman. And it's almost like yeah. when you look at the Coppola family, it's, 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 there's a lot of like three siblings a lot of the time. Yeah. And it, it kind of like you can see that thing of that story is siblings wanting to live up to the memory of their father. In this case, like... Uh, dead but like you can imagine like the yeah like um 
Roman and Sophia definitely probably having conversations, and even Jason Schwartzman to some degree, yeah, going yeah. like, "We like, we're trying to make our way in this kind of acting <laughs> and movie biz, and we got that, we got that hulking giant like looming above <laughs> us." I think, I'm sure there's there's like a, a university sort of exam question you could set in film studies about, you know, how much is Bill Murray an avatar of Francis Coppola in the work of Sophia Coppola, and yeah. because he he kind of is his presence certainly in On the Rocks, you know, mm-hmm. that, that's it's very consciously a version of a father. He drives the same car that her father had when he was a young man, so there are kind of very tight connections. I love that the story that the wedding when she married Spike Jones. They had the wedding at the, at, the, at the Napa Valley vineyards. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like the opening of, of The Godfather. All the family are there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are these kind of generations of filmmakers. So there's kind of David O. Russell and Wes Anderson, you know, milling around with George Lucas and, and Coppola and all that kind of that breed. What a mix of, mm. you know, what, what were the conversations they had over kind of, you know, wedding cake and wine? And, they kind of, you know, what are you guys doing? What camera do you use? You know, <laughs> no, we never do that. Never do that. You know. It's kind of a wonderful, and I, I think with Wes Anderson especially, because Wes Anderson is a real, you know, real homage kind of guy, and yes. he pays such homage to to the movie brat generation in his work. Obviously, in Rushmore, you see the the version of Apocalypse Now that, mm-hmm. that Schwarzman's character does on stage, the Vietnam film, and there's there's a great um, reference to The Godfather as well when uh, Max Fisher is getting kicked out of uni- like of, of of Rushmore. He says to um, uh, he says to like the dean like oh can you not let me slot like can you not let me uh, coast by this time can you not let me off the hook which I think is like a, a paraphrase of a line yeah. that um, someone says to Hagen in like Godfather just before he's about to get whacked and like I love like that that idea of Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson kind of like rubbing their hands together going like. Oh, we've got a couple of kid in this, and we're going to make a, some cheeky references to his to his uh, uncle's films. Well, it's kind of it goes. Uh, it's such an entangled world that yes. you start to realise. It's like I don't know if you've been watching Fargo, the television series, but season five of Fargo mm-hmm. has Jason Schwartzman as the head of a mafia family <laughs> with, an, with an overbearing brother, <laughs> and it's all crumbling around him, and it's. Such a play within the world of Fargo on The Godfather. You know, they've even taken shots from The Godfather that they're parodying within it. Okay. And it's Jason Schwartzman doing it, doing a version of, of Francis. It's, it's fantastic. And that then connects you back to the Cohen brothers, you know, yeah. that, and their kind of view on things and their play on things. Well, you know, yeah. The way they did Miller's Crossing is a pastiche of gangster mythology. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and obviously you've written a book about the the, the Coens, and obviously there's that that connection to Nicolas Cage and like yeah. Ridley Scott again, Nicolas Cage, which a film that I think is like I find it interesting with Nicolas Cage with uh, the directors he's worked with because he's kind of like checked off some of like I guess what a lot of people would argue like Hollywood's biggest directors, whether it is his own uncle or. Brian De Palma, Scorsese, but a lot of the time it feels like he has worked in their their in between films to to a lot of people. I guess like Matchstick Men, a lot of people would like. Do you know what I mean? Kind of skip over that one as like that is like the the one for me kind of film as opposed to the like yeah. the studio film by by Ridley Scott stuff like that. Yeah, I, I don't think Ridley would see it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think he, he's yeah he, he's very you know. Uh, Proud and I think interested in, in what he did with the Matchstick Men. Um, 
I think he did it because he really wanted to break and to test himself in, in an arena that he, he wasn't confident or necessarily confident in. He'd done all these huge films and, and he knew the epic and he knew science fiction. But here it was a, you know, a, almost kind of a new wave comedy drama crime movie that yeah. harkened to a little bit like what was going on in the early 90s with, with Tarantino and you know, that kind of force that had come into Hollywood, you know, and obviously Tarantino, who I've written about, yeah. dated Sofia Coppola for a little while. <laughs> so there's that little entanglement. Um, and I think where Matchstick Man came in, he, he just wanted to do something a bit European, although it's set in America. There's sort of bits of Jacques Tati in, in the performance that Nicolas Cage gives. It's that kind of weird European comedy yeah. feel about it. Uh, I really like it. I, I think it's very I underrated. It. Yeah, I, 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 and actually very moving. I, I've really kind of that scene at the end in the carpet shop, I find very touching that in the end, it was a father-daughter thing that mattered to him. The money didn't matter. Yeah, the yeah. con didn't matter. It was the connection. And that's what broke his heart. Yeah, I go, well, yeah, that is the thing, like, Obviously, for the directors, it's not a case of it is like an in-between film for them. But I think it's like the public perception a lot of the time. Because I guess like yeah. bringing out the dead is like, for me, like a really like when people talk about that amazing run of Nicolas Cage in the 90s. It, it's one that kind of gets skipped over. And it's like, it's, fant- it's fantastic. It's like this kind of like, it's Scorsese and Schrader really getting back to that kind of dark underbelly of new york but told through this weird story of a guy who's like a paramedic and stuff like that like yes it's it's, it's true it's actually terrific film i actually saw it in new york which is a great place to (laughs) to watch a scorsese film if you can try and see a scorsese film in new york when you come out you're like oh my god i'm here it's it's a fantastic feeling i love that film i think it's one of scorsese's best and it is as you say it's a companion to taxi driver yeah in the sense of the, the lost soul on the streets and seeing the ghosts of the people he couldn't save. I mean, he's a different character to Travis Bickle, but he, he's incredibly intense. And it's, it's Cage's, you know, I think these days we get caught up a little bit in the kind of Cage's quirkiness and what kind of crazy thing is he going to do next? And how crazy is the film going to be around him? And we forget how subtle he, he can be mm-hmm. and how moving he can be and how he can be absorbed into the film around him. If you watch Bringing Out the Dead, there's no doubting it's a Martin Scorsese film and incredibly intense. And it's not like Cage comes in and turns it into the Cage show. He doesn't at all. He, yeah. he absolutely fits in with the world that that, that movie creates. And, uh, yeah, I think it, for him and for Scorsese, it's one of their, their, best, their best films. To kind of bring it back to, like, the, the wider Coppola family is, like, you look at adaptation, a film that, like, kind of arguably wouldn't have happened without that. Sophia and Spike Jones connection it kind of very much again felt like that thing of like uh, Sophia do you think your cousin like might might star in my film and <laughs> I always love that story of how and it's something I always joke about is like there is no Spike Jones as we know him without Francis Ford Coppola passing on the script for being John Malkovich right oh yeah uh, you know, and again, you have to say how much has Coppola, you know, shaped the, the movie universe yeah. around him. Yeah, he, you know, he got the script to Malkovich. You know, he made that happen. He, I mean, you can't do that film without Malkovich. It's just impossible. It's made any sense at all. Yeah, yeah. And he got it as well. I think what's brilliant about that story is that Coppola, you know, understood what Spike Jones was trying to do. He understood this kind of sort of, sort of perverse humor and this sort of postmodern way of approaching uh, film 
and kind of got it. Yeah, he was excited by it. And yeah, he, he's you know, he has done a lot behind the scenes that I think we, we don't really sort of credit him for. You know, he's been on he was on the board at MGM at one point. You know, it wasn't particularly successful at that point, but he, <laughs> you know, he was around influencing you know, what was going on there. So he he's had this incredible career sense of yes, we always talk about the, the kind of the classics, as it were, and we yeah. think of those understandably. But actually, it's many stories his life, and you know, once I started chipping away at the wine, you know, the vineyards, that's extraordinary what yeah. they were doing out there because it was it wasn't a working business; it was a poor vineyard, but they bought it, and they turned it around, and suddenly it started really making money. It started <laughs> making more money than the films, and he became this this kind of vintner. He became this kind of man of Napa Valley who was yeah. growing these incredible grapes and launching all this all this kind of wine on the world family business you know yeah, exactly. and then he put the sort of filmmaking into the lap of that he had his offices there and they had screening rooms there and you know the family would come and you do all these wonderful stories about you know as they prepared any film you'd bring the cast up to, to napa valley to do the rehearsals there yeah. and in the evening they would drink wine and he would cook them dinner and they would just talk about the world and this was the way of sort of creating the family of the film before they started yeah i, I love those um the DVD extra, I think it's on a Miramax release, like a two-disc edition of One From The Heart, and there's all this footage of Tom Waits at the Napa Valley house kind of like talking about like how Francis wanted the songs and stuff like that. And it like really warms your heart and you hear these stories of Francis like cooking like a big, a big like bolognese for everyone like on, on set and stuff like that. And it's like, it's... I don't know, you can throw away all those ideas of like nepotism and this guy who cares about money. Cause when you kind of like peel off the the layers of it, he, he clearly doesn't care about money because he's made so many <laughs> gambles to the to the fact that like he could have taken the easy route and he's gone, fuck it, I'll I won't. Like Jeremy, you know I mean? I'll spend I'll, I'll finance it myself and I'll spend however long in uh, up in the Philippines trying to make apocalypse <laughs> now. Yeah, you know, I think you're absolutely right. He doesn't care about the money at all. He spends it so easily. He doesn't control it. I mean, it's what drove Lucas mad. It's like, why don't you care about the money, Francis? You've got to put some away. I mean, he loved luxury. Don't get me wrong. He loved big houses yeah. and swimming pools and, and parties and living the life, buying art. And, and yeah, he was extravagant. That's all part of his personality. But absolutely, he wanted to, to spend the money to gain control. Mm -hmm screen ownership of the films to be the, the, the kind of the mogul figure who's driving you know the, the creativity the problem with that was always along that he couldn't be both things he couldn't be the kind of vibrant difficult artist the kind of you know the michelangelo and be the pope julius at the same time he couldn't be the two figures <laughs> and so with one from the heart you know his great nightmare was the guy who owned the studio had to deal with the director who was making the film and they were the same person <laughs> and it all got muddled it's like so he, he forgot about being a mogul and was a runaway director but his boss was himself and this was kind of what was going wrong yeah i i, I i've recently found out a fact um like an intern or like a runner uh, zoetrope studios was david fincher and i always love that kind of like there's a there's a seed that like there's no do you know what i mean again there's no fincher yeah. without coping it all kind of like as, as the more i kind of dig and like even though I'm, I, I feel like i'm a, a pastiche of myself because obviously i've gone into a podcast going 
the Coppola's are the greatest film family of all time. Let me prove it to you. Like, as much I'm like, I'm saying that tongue in cheek. I keep looking back to it. I'm like, oh, there is a lot of connections to say that they've done. Do you know what I mean? They've like, yeah, they've, 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 they've done, they've done, they, they're kind of proving it. Um, so like, is there any latter day Coppola films that you do enjoy? Is there kind of stuff that you would recommend people check out? Cause I know it kind of gets lambasted a lot of the time. Yeah, I think there is. I think you have to uh, sort of qualify a little bit when you talk about <laughs> sort of second phase Coppola, so post Rainmaker Coppola. After he had a sort of a ten, nearly a 10 year hiatus mm-hmm. where he didn't make anything and then came back with Youth Without Youth, Tetro, and Twixt. Uh, Twixt, I would leave. It's, it's, <laughs> it, was, it was designed to be a sort of experiment with live editing and it, that didn't work out. And it's, it's a, there's some great visuals in it. Yeah, it looks a bit like Sin City in a way. It's yeah. also, he's sort of dallying with computers. And, but as a horror movie, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's kind of an oddball thing. Um, but I think both Youth Without Youth and Tetra have a lot in them that, that's worth seeking out. Youth Without Youth is very strange. And it's based on this sort of Eastern European novella, and it was all shot in Romania. It has a lovely look to it. It looks a bit like The Godfather has that kind of rather sepia tone but it's all about sort of resurrection and a man living forever and you know it's, it's a weird story but has a certain kind of eloquence about it and wonderful sort of moments um but i think tetro is the one again it has strangeness in it so dream stuff but it's family it's brothers yeah. and it's also in buenos aires but it's the family it's a coppola family story replayed you know within the textures of this kind of new family which the younger brother is sort of looks up to the this kind of difficult older brother and complications arise with a play that he'd written once. So it's about the artistic process and the marriage of that with family. I think it's, it's a great movie. So one of the things I noticed in the book is you, you touch upon like not just obviously Sophia and uh, Francis's films, but the, in the later chapters you look at like Roman's films and even like Robert Schwartzman or Gia Coppola's films were there any like films that really like jumped out to you of like oh wow like these guys don't really get talked about like apart from like maybe in in passing of they happen to be related to the Coppola family yeah. uh, definitely uh, G is fascinating she, she's sort of a mix of Francis and Sophia in yeah. a way. she's obviously <laughs> she's the, gra- the granddaughter if, if, you, if you're unaware of that she is um, Gio's daughter, and he was killed before she, she ever got to meet him. So there's a there's a strange legacy with Gia, and she grew up in in, in the embrace of the family, and, and herself was a young child on, on the sets of, of her aunt's films. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting legacy being handed down. So it was natural she too would become a filmmaker. Um, uh, pa- Palo, it's Palo Vista, isn't it? Paolo Alto. Palo Alto. Um, is you know is, is an intriguing film. It's, it's flawed, but it's, it's an intriguing uh, drama about teens that often gets lumped in with it's a kind of a Sophia film, but I don't think it is. It's got a kind of darker, stranger, you know, tenser quality to it yeah. that, that Sophia's films have. Robert Schwartzman is interesting. He's almost like an outlier of, <laughs> the, of the whole scenario because he sort of operates a bit more autonomously. Yeah. He's in a couple of the. He's a very good-looking guy, and he was in a couple of Sophia's early films. He's in Virgin Suicides another role around um and he's the brother of, of jason and he's been in a band and the band was very successful yeah. and he's it's kind of this kind of other life 
And he's made three films which are which are good, actually. You have to sort of track them down a bit. They're not widely mm-hmm. distributed and they're very indie. But he makes a kind of um, quirky social commentary comedies sort of along the lines of The Graduate a little bit. So again, is his own man. is his own sort of style of things. And he's a guy who's also setting up companies rather like you know, Francis. Yeah, yeah. To distribute films and work out new ways of playing the system. So, yeah, I think Sophia and Francis do have, you know, the standout careers in terms mm-hmm. of the, the output, uh, which is not a radical thing to say. But that there's really interesting undercurrents beneath that. Yeah. Uh, I- your, your devotion to Nicholas Coppola is uh, Nicholas Cage, or well, Nicholas Coppola is his real name is, you know, is, 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 is really admirable because that's an extraordinary career. Mm-hmm. And I really would love to if I had the space and time to have explored that more in relation to the family. Mm-hmm. You know, how much is he trying to break away and doing a different thing? How much actually can you see elements of the family in his choices and oh, work? Yeah, yeah. I, I always joke about the fact of like he broke away by changing the surname but was happy to like kind of take a slice of the family pie when it was like he got a small part in Rumble Fish and then got the kind of like almost like second lead in Peggy Sue got married and stuff like that. But like he he's fascinating because and it's been said it's been said on this podcast and fantastically said by um uh film producer Daniel Noah of Spectavision, who worked on Mandy and Colour Out Space, who said that <laughs> Nicolas Cage is like a garden hose depending on whether a director can like either let that garden hose run wild in the garden, like it will just go everywhere. Or if they hold it correctly, it can like, you can, you can water your garden and have beautiful flowers like yeah. blooming by the spring because that is the thing. I think he is like a guy who is like got these fascinating ideas and like everyone I've spoke to has ever worked with him has these like stories of no matter what the budget is he will come on day one going i know the script back to front i know everyone else's lines as well and i've got this list of things i want to do with the character and in color out space his thing was like each member of the family has a different like um reaction to the to the color and his is like a thing of smell so throughout the film he's like like, can you smell that it smells rancid he wanted to wear a clothes peg on on his, <laughs> on his nose, and like yeah, D- uh, Daniel Noah and Elijah Wood, who were like producers on it, were kind of like, and and the team who worked on that film were like, "Hey Nick, that's probably not a good idea." Do you know what I mean? Like, and it, it, it I, I, and the fact that he makes all these films, it very much, it feels like he's got that spirit of of his uncle in a way of that yeah, kind right. of like, let's go for broke. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, and. He, he he likes a lavish lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very famously out there that he kind of so some squandered money on like haunted mansions and pyramids <laughs> and dinosaur skulls. So yeah, I think he's he's very much a part of that of of that lineage that his that his, his uncle put out there. Yeah, he, he is, and you're absolutely right. I think he he has that passion. Mm-hmm. And he has that that, sort of, that craziness that <laughs> that's certainly Francis Farmos because August Nicholas's father was yeah, he was an academic yeah. and a writer on literature and 
and it was very different from Francis. So I think the gene that came down was the <laughs> one that had gone through Francis and passed on to, to, to Nicolas Cage. It was that kind of wildness, artistically especially. That you know, and you look at the the performances again with with Francis. It's really out there. The beginnings of the kind of the the, the crazy Nicolas Cage are there in in the kind of uh, these Coppola films. Yeah. A little bit in Rumblefish, but it's definitely there in Cotton Club, where he's doing almost a cartoon yeah. version of, of gangsters. And it's there in, um, you know, the squeaky voice performance of Peggy <laughs> Sue Got Married, where in his head, it was a cartoon world that had been created. So he was playing a cartoon character with a yeah. cartoon voice. So absolutely. I, I think you can really see the links with, and, and the frustrations also, because he wanted more work from, from Francis that he got, I think, that he, he is a Coppola and it's there and he can't escape it, whether he wants to or not. I, I, I'm not sure how much like steam there is in this, but like I, I vaguely, it might, it might have been IMDb trivia, so it might be a, a, a totally bullshit, but uh, that somewhere is somewhat based on like there are elements of the Stephen Dorff character that are borrowed from Nick Cage. Like he, I think he at one point had a tenure at staying at the Chateau Marmont and stuff like that. And if you kind of look at that character, it's, it's kind of part Francis Ford Coppola and part Nicholas Cage in a way of a kind of like a guy who was massively successful yeah. and has fallen on these like more, I don't know, like, I don't, I, yeah, like down times and stuff like that. And I, I, I love that aspect of the family that they kind of like, they draw, they, they, they draw in all from each other. Like that, yeah. Like I think that Stephen Dorff uh, role could have easily been played by Nicolas Cage. Like maybe if he was like ten years, I don't know, five ten, ten years, years younger. younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It very much feels like it could have been a, a Cage performance, like whipping about in a sports car and kind of being this, this woman. Tony, because if you if you think about it and you do it on, you know, the money movies make. The most successful member of the Coppola clan is Nicolas Cage. He's yeah. made more money than any of them, <laughs> including Francis. You know, he's been in you know, Gone, Gone in 60 Seconds and you know, Con Air and all the kind of the films he's done. You put it all together, and actually he's the most successful one of them. Of course, he's sort of fallen into this new part of his career when he's not making sort of blockbusting films anymore. But it's you know he, he's he was a big movie star, and I certainly think he, he's there in somewhere. I think Johnny Depp's a bit in somewhere as well. I think that they actually talked about casting Johnny Depp at one point, and it's sort of but Stephen Dorff was another friend of Sophia's, and she wanted the kind of friendship thing to, to yeah. play in someone who's in her circle. That kind of plays back in, and of course Sophia had lived in the, 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 the Chateau Marmont, yeah, so yeah. It's, he's also slightly a version of her in a strange way. Yeah, She's and, both the daughter and the father. She, she's kind of in both places. But, it, of course, it's Francis as well in, in the daughter-father relationship. Yeah, and especially that but, sequence when they go to Italy, right, for the, like... Probably the, all the ice cream and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of, I think she, she said in interviews she remembers as a child going to some, like, award ceremony that kind of had this, like, very pantomime hokey dance and like him like francis kind of loving it but at the same time feeling quite awkward about the whole situation and like i yeah i love I, I love that through these films we get like a snapshot into who they are as a family and like almost in a way i don't know as much as <laughs> as much as uh francis rails against like kind of cinematic universes whether it's marvel or kind of dc and stuff <laughs> like that 
his family have almost created this uh, cinematic universe of these autobiographical films that are all about them. Yeah, absolutely. But Francis would sort of say, well, that's, that's what artists should be doing. Yeah. You tell your own story. You don't tell these stories about ridiculous people in tights. Um, I remember I, I interviewed Francis you know, a few times, but I interviewed him on uh, shortly after The Dark Knight had come out. And everyone was talking about The Dark Knight. Yeah. You know, it was that point in time. And Christopher Nolan. And I, I asked him if he's seen it. And he goes, yeah, I, I saw it. I, I saw it. You know, shake of the head and that kind of. Well, dismissive. He's made all this money, and he can't bear the fact this film has made all this money. And he's a very talented guy, clearly a talented director. But it's, it's about a guy in a silly suit. That's what it is. It's for children, and that's how he saw it. And they kind of they, yeah, these were guys who grew up the movie brats, if you want. They were guys who grew up in, in the 1960s, heavily influenced by. Uh, he was heavily influenced by theatre, but they were all heavily influenced by what's going on in Europe and, and France and. and you know, the idea of authorship. And they grew up in political times. Yeah. They grew up against an America in turmoil, Vietnam, Nixon, all those things. So it almost became beholden you know, in terms of who they were as filmmakers to be serious about what yeah. they were going to portray and, and put into their films. It was a calling. And of course, then they all brought their own, their own baggage and their own style. And with France, it was very much about family and Martin Scorsese, it was about the streets and, and New York and where he'd grown up. And with Spielberg, it was about suburbia and divorce and you know, his life. With Brian De Palma, I have no idea. It was all craziness <laughs> in Brian De Palma's head. <laughs> Whatever he was going on in Brian De Palma's head, I don't know. But there were all those things that they kind of brought into it. Mm. So I suppose they would look at the current generation and think they're just technocrats. You know, they're just guys who knew the, tech, knew the technology and know the talent, but just want to make far-fetched, you know, blockbusting superhero films, you know, and Lucas and Spielberg, yeah, certainly have, you know, a lot to blame for this kind of yeah, change yeah, yeah. in Hollywood and blow, but still even Lucas, I think made personal films, you know, the Star Wars films, his original three are quite personal. Mm -hmm. I always think of them as they're kind of like American graffiti mixed with THX, <laughs> you know, the style of THX with all the warmth of American graffiti, like a Venn diagram. In the middle of it, you get Star Wars. You know, that's going to like that kind of 60s warmth and become Americana mixed with the cold austere THX1138, <laughs> which is the Empire and the Rebellion. You put them together and you get Star Wars. Yeah, it's, it's personal. I, I think that, you know, superhero films are very popular and can be very entertaining. Um, but I, I have sympathy with their viewpoints. I do. Because I can't see Hollywood ever creating Apocalypse Now again. Yeah. I can't see it creating the Godfather again. And maybe those, those historical circumstances were unique. But right now, I think it's going to be hard for Lost in Translation to get made. Mm -hmm. Because it's, yeah, and, and Sophie is now working on a television show. And so, yeah, they're getting siphoned off because that's where the money is yeah. and the opportunity is and the creative freedom is. It's, it's all in streaming and television. So I, I do think it's a point, you know, and I, I kind of, when I hear these announcements that Marvel are making another eight films and they're all going to slot in here <laughs> and they're all interlinked and it's all marvellous. A little bit, little bit inside me dies and I think, ah, oh, but, you know, I would give them all. I'd trade them all in, every single one of them, for five minutes of Apocalypse Now. I yeah. would. Yeah. <laughs> I can keep five minutes of Apocalypse Now versus all of Marvel and you can, you can come at me, fans, if you want to come <laughs> at me. I would do that trade. Yeah. Um, it's a great film writer called David Thompson. I don't know if you know David Thompson. It's terrific. He's based in San Francisco. He knows Francis Coppola very well. He's written about him very well. 
He said once he was writing about Blade Runner. He said, I would keep, yeah, he said, no, I said, I would trade in all three Indiana Jones films, it was three at the time, for half an hour of Blade Runner. So I would do that trade. And I <laughs> kind of get that. Yes. You know, I loved the Indiana Jones films. I, you know, they were very important films and they still are. And they fill me with great joy. They're wonderfully made films. So don't get me wrong. I'm not sort of saying they're Marvel films. But I get the half an hour because Blade Runner is so extraordinary and talks to me in so many strange ways that I need to keep Blade Runner because you know, that, that's the film lodged in my head mm-hmm. in a way that those, those other films aren't. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's, it's interesting that move to TV because obviously, like, uh, I'm not sure if you ever checked out uh, Roman and Jason Schwartzman, like, had a, like, with oh, the director of American Pie, of all things, and about a boy and being Flynn, they, they co-created this show called Mozart in the Jungle, which was yes. like, I'd like, it's, it's, it's like one of those things, like, I, I got really into it last year as I started like deep diving into this and then it's like three or four seasons and then got cancelled or whatever. But like, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And I think like Roman, again, it's another like, because I, I recently spoke to Sky Elobar who uh, starred in The Greasy Strangler, but like he reached out to me and was like, hey, like I actually starred in four commercials that were directed by Roman Coppola. And I think like, He's this kind of, I don't know, he's like the, the, the silent but deadly member of the family, I think. He's kind of like ticking underneath, like, I think he like owns like a company. He's basically like the CEO now of Zoetrope and stuff like that, isn't he? he, like he the- yeah, he, he runs Zoetrope now. And Francis has sort of handed it all on now. And, and really, apart from his own films that get produced under Zoetrope, doesn't have much to do with the day-to-day operations. I'm sure he looks in occasionally, yeah, yeah, has yeah. a coffee from the, the fine espresso machine <laughs> and, and sort of dawdles around the desks occasionally looking at some screenplays. But in practical terms, he, he sort of retired from Zoetrope. And it's fallen to Roman. And Roman was an interesting character because he, he isn't a natural director. And I don't mean to say that he's, he can't direct because you know, he's made two, two films and they're kind of quirky and very interesting, CQ especially. And he's a great second unit. He's been second unit on so all of Sophia's films and obviously worked on a lot of Francis's films. Had the kind of almost galling job of stepping in where G, after Gio died, because Gio basically became um, an, the apprentice to his father. He mm-hmm. worked beside his father, dropped out of school, worked beside his father in all his films. And he was being trained up to be a director, Gio, and then obviously tragically was killed. Uh, during the making of Gardens of Stone, it was a boating accident, and it was it was Roman who had to step into that that gap and become you know, sit beside his father in the edit suites and, and be the technical guy for his father. And I think he is he's been a facilitator. I think he has more of his mother in him maybe mm-hmm. than his father. You know, he's a facilitator and he's a gentle and a gentleman uh, kind of guy. He is an absolute backbone to Sophia. I think he's helped her write screenplays. He's a very good writer, Roman. Yeah. You know, he said about Wes Anderson's work. Roman's hugely important in, in, in that. And runs the company and finds new ways for the company to operate. He's also someone who's interested in streaming and future. He keeps all that buoyant. So he has yeah. that kind of calm, collected, kind of George Lucasy side to him mm-hmm. that says, keep the money safe. Let's <laughs> not go running off doing anything crazy. And so it's been very important for for the family, very important to keeping that going, but hasn't been the auteur, maybe, that Sophia has become. She's got more of her father in him, although she's calm as well. 
than, than Roman has. I mean, I, you know, I suppose we went, we hang out in the fam, we went for dinner, we looked at them all, and we'd probably see Roman is very like his father in, in many, yeah, many well, ways. He looks a spit, he looks a spitting image, right? He's like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and he's got, and he loves going to Cannes, and he loves all that kind of side of it. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I think it's interesting that he didn't become the director. And that that was maybe that path, you know, was something he just hadn't naturally wanted. Yeah, and even his writing, it, it draws back to the family because in Moonrise Kingdom, there's the moment when uh, Bill Murray and Francis McDormand are like talking to each other via. Uh, like loudspeakers, do you know what I mean? They've got like the bullhorns, yeah. like shouting to each other, and that is lifted from uh, Roman's childhood. He's like, that's how, that's how like my parents would communicate around the house, and I guess it's that kind of like hangover from film sets, yeah, yeah. and they're like, well, that works on a film set. Do you know what I mean? We've got this massive Napa Valley uh, mansion. Like, let's let let's kind of round up the kids by like shouting for a bullhorn, like. Roman, get down, get down for dinner. Like we've we've got pasta. Well, yeah, it's you know, the divide between you know, family life and and movie making life is indistinct. There isn't really a divide between you know as we we're saying right at the beginning. So these the kids grew up on movie sets. Yes. I mean, the Godfather, the baby is Sophia. You know, she was born during the production of that film. You know, there was Marlon Brando blessed her on the set. You know, that's all there. <laughs> So they grew up with it. So actually, the dividing line isn't there. I mean, one of the, uh, the fabulous stories, I think, of Apocalypse Now is just following Sophia dur- during that time. And she was four years old. And she became five because it went on so long. <laughs> and she was at school. I mean, the two boys went back to America to go to school and came back out to, to the Philippines, to Manila. But Sophia was there the whole time, learned to speak the, you know, the local language, and so went to the, the local school. and. That idea of the family was so present. And there's a wonderful story. It's a really strange story of, and I put it in the book. So it was a poignant image in the end. There was, she got knits, you know, any, any school, any school kid these days who goes to school gets knits. But obviously in Philippines, it was very common. And there's a moment then during the hellstorm of Apocalypse Now when you know, this guy's brain is about to burst, where um, Eleanor says it, he was sitting calmly picking the knits out of, Sophia's hair and was he was calming to the moment he was had a job to do with his child near the torch he's trying to find them <laughs> and actually this brought serenity to him you know in, in the midst of the storm of this film that he couldn't figure out and, and the making of it and all those things he was being a father and the father made sense to him and brought him back to himself mm-hmm. and I think having the children around was a great force in his life because they always brought him back to himself yeah. the, the presence the family table the meals and yeah. having them and seeing the, the kids and you know during the pandemic they all came to the back to, to to live on the vineyard yeah yeah, all 20, yeah 23 people 23 <laughs> relatives grandchildren running around and he loved it i, I think that's, that's what he wanted during this terrible time he wanted the family back around him and it's probably like a movie set, I imagine, yeah. you know, with bullhorns, I'm sure. Everybody in for dinner, you know, giant bowls of pasta and movie club at night and all, all these things. It's all, that is so him. I, I hope with the grandkids he did what he did with uh, his children, which is a, a, a favourite story of mine, is that, uh, when they were young, he would do, like, writing workshops and they would kind of put on plays. And, like, I think it's Jason Schwartzman, which I very, very much, like, 
shows you why he was perfect to play someone like Max Fisher is yeah. like however young he was, maybe like 10 years old, kind of wrote this one act play based on like Tennessee Williams or something like that. And then <laughs> they would like, they would put it on in the theater. They'd have two days to work on it. And then Francis would be like, that's it. We'll stage a play like uh, for, for the family and stuff like that. Yeah. I hope, I hope that happened during the pandemic with the grandkids. There's a lovely another story that with the grandchildren, when they hit the age of nine, which is when he got polio, was mm-hmm. bedridden. He takes each of them individually anywhere in the world they want to go. Wow. He sits down with his grandchild, each one, and says, nine years old, okay, where do you want to go in the world? And he takes them. And this is about his own childhood, being unable to move, being trapped in one room for a year. And it's a kind of a gift he's sort of giving back. He's yeah. saying, you as my grandchild can go anywhere in the world. And that's where he's got to. And in fact, that's it's kind of giving away trade secrets of the book, but that's kind of where the book finishes. So it starts with the polio and finishes with this idea that he takes his grandchildren. That's the arc. Amazing. That's sort of a great place to have got to yeah. in your life. Through all this turmoil and chaos, he's ended up this place where he's almost Father Christmas. <laughs> which is right. I'm sure they all go Disney World. Yeah, only every time. <laughs> Not Disney World again. Yeah. <laughs> anywhere else. Not Disney World. I don't know. I don't know where they went, but uh, it's a lovely story that that's where he does for each of them. I, I love that. Uh, well, th- that that feels like a, a, a perfect place to, to maybe leave the, the conversation as well. Kind of come, yeah, almost like full circle on it from the beginnings of the book to kind of uh, maybe a spoiler end. for the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what, what comes next for you? Are, you? are you working on anything at the moment? Like, are you, Yeah, I have you just next? finished a book on James Cameron. Wow. Um, which is kind of very different. Very different story and a different fish. Very exciting to write about. In fact, I started that before Coppola and the Coppolas. They both were kind of running concurrently, but we were going to do them in that order. But the pandemic altered film schedules and things, and you sort of publish into into sort of publicity moments. So we thought we'd wait with Cameron until Avatar 2 was about to land. That I just delivered it, but it it comes out next, comes out this time next year. It's how... Glacius, glacially yeah. slow books move. Uh, and so it was, it was great. I, I, he's a, a fascinating story. In some ways, you know, he is, he's kind of an auteur, though he's very, very different. Mm-hmm. But he's very personally driven and, you know, almost maniacally at times. But, yeah. uh, and each of his films is just an astonishing story in its own right. You know, what kind of chaos and genius well, that went into them. Well, yeah, when you yeah. start looking at, like, James Cameron, like, what is it like uh, making making like foam that can put out fire underwater and like these expeditions that he kind of go like self-funded to kind of explore the depths of the ocean and stuff like that. He's kind of like, I don't know, as much as people laugh at him, he's, he, he is, he's another one who is trying to push what cinema can yeah. do and what it's about forward, which like, again, it's, it, it always feels like a perfect, next book after Coppola right because it is that kind of like somebody who probably would have looked at that as somebody who like was the first person over do you know what I mean over the top yeah. into be like right fuck it let's make auto cinema that's for adult but at the same time like commercially viable and that's kind of what James Cameron did with like Terminator yeah. and Aliens and stuff like oh, that totally Totally. I, he, I mean, I sort of said it in the book. He's like, 
every time he makes a film, he kind of puts the whole industry on his shoulders and sort of <laughs> lifts them up like Atlas. Yeah. It just staggers into the future <laughs> with the whole industry. That's what James Cameron does. And the difference between him and Coppola is that Cameron has P.T. Barnum in him. He has a kind of a genetic P.T. Barnum nature. So he is a showman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Coppola's a showman, but he's an artist. Coppola wants to write these autobiographical stories that are very personal about families, even if it's the gangsters or they're in Vietnam. Whereas Cameron has this kind of P.T. Barnum, like, let's put on a show. You know, let's, you know, <laughs> I'll show you. Well, film about Titanic, I'm going to show you the whole ship sinking in real time <laughs> and tip it up like this. And, you know, I'm going to show you. I'm going to have Arnie as this kind of killing machine. And that's that's kind of a different spirit, but absolutely right. It's kind of equally he he isn't he isn't programmed like you know I'm going to do a Marvel film. He isn't a program like a blockbuster maker. He's a guy who shifts the paradigm every mm-hmm. time. Who kind of gets it and goes. And what he's going to, what I kind of concluded with with Avatar two, three, four, however many they're going to be. <laughs> what he's got to do is reinvent CGI because CGI has become monotonous mm-hmm. and boring and the same in every film no longer special it's kind of it's robotic and he's got to come he's got to reinvent it that's the challenge for him really and i'm sure he knows that so he's going to do things that make the first avatar look like the stone age and i'll be sort of like beam straight into our heads (laughs) without we're in pandora running around (laughs) crazy but um yeah it's been a fascinating ride just to sort of and you know you're born along by him like francis you're born along by these stories so you can, you can, you can get it all in. I've got to get it all in. Perfect. Well, I very much look forward to, to, to checking that one out when it comes out, uh, Ian. Well, thank you so much for, for, for coming along and talking about this fantastic, weird and wonderful family that is the Coppola's. <laughs> Great pleasure. As I say, it's been in my head for the last two years, at least, <laughs> probably longer. So it's great to have got the book out. It's great to be able to get it out of my head and talk to people about it as well. Thank you for your interest. No worries. Well, yeah. Well, where can people like keep up to date with with you and like the kind of things you write and the, the opinions you may have on something? Yeah, I, I, I'm on Twitter, Ian at Ian Nathan 2. Um, actually, I've got a screen right here glowing on me. Um, this is me trying attempting to figure out what Substack does because I want to set up a kind of a, a blogging kind of uh, system on Substack, um, which I hope we get up and running in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's me trying new technology out, so I'm a bit of a Luddite, but, you know, uh, keeping up with things. Um, obviously, you know, books are available in the, the usual places. Good bookstores, go to your independent bookstore if you can. If not, obviously, the, the evil overlord Amazon stocks them in their many warehouses. Um <laughs> And yeah, you know, it's, um, I'm around about, if you're at, ever at screenings, just shout out and I'll, I'm around, I'm there. Perfect. Um, Again, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, Ian. Cheers. Well, have a good evening and uh, let's speak again soon. A massive thank you once again to Ian for coming and chatting to me about his fantastic book. And another little reminder to you guys as well to pick up a copy. I'll be sure to drop a little link in the show notes to show you where you could buy it. Um, But if you can, remember, buy a nice local bookshop instead of that 
bald evil man who's uh, shooting himself into space and feeling like he can get into the the public's favour by shooting William Shatner into space as well. We got no time for you, Jeff boy. Uh, (laughs) So as for next week on the podcast, I will be joined by writer, comedian and podcaster Molly McGuinness to talk about the 1994 hostage comedy Airheads starring Adam Sandler, Steve Buscemi and the great Brendan Frazier which was lensed by our boy John Swartzman making it our Coppola connection. It was a really fun chat. Uh, I recorded it just earlier this afternoon, the time I'm recording this, giving you a little insight into how the podcast works. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, so be sure to check out that one next week. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with the podcast, I always love it if you do. Uh, it's fun fun to engage, have a, have a chat, have a chit and a chat about all things Nicolas Cage, all things Coppola, all things film in general. It's kind of been a weird one for me at the moment. Uh, it seems like Twitter is awash with James Bond and June chat and something about them. I'm just not interested. So I'm kind of kind of taking a back seat at the moment, uh, trying to trying to be trying to be like. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to just have an opinion for the sake of it because because I'm just just not interested. But yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at Caged In Pod. Or if you would like to, I don't know, have a little bit more of a a deeper conversation, or you've got a lot more to say to me, or there's something you want to say that uh, you, you don't want on a you don't want on a social platform. That's cool. DM me or send me an email at Caged In pod at gmail.com if you're listening to this thinking you know what i would really love to support petros and everything he's doing with this podcast you can you know what you can you can sign up to patreon which is patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where soon 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 there will be a new bonus season of the podcast just for patreons called the movie brat bros and season one will be De Palma-rama, where I'll be looking at the films of Brian De Palma and seeing how they work in relation to the career of Francis Ford Coppola, e.g. In 1974, did Brian De Palma do a better film than The Godfather? You're gonna have to listen to the podcast to find out. So yeah, I'm still eyeing out the details on how much that tier is going to cost, but it's not going to be much, guys. Four pounds, if that. Four dollars. Who knows? It's, it's going to be. It's going to be cheap, cheap. That's going to be, hopefully, fortnightly. Obviously, whatever I decide, the price will determine that. Um, yeah, the, 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 whatever decide is to the schedule. The price would be determined by all of that. If you just want to buy me a coffee as well, you can. You can go over to ko-fi.com forward slash Cajun Pod. We can just. Buy me a little, little, little cup of coffee. All, all the money that goes into there goes into making more fun stuff for the podcast, whether that is merch, whether that is just helping me. If, I don't know if there's equipment that, that's been a bit ropey and needs to replace it. I'll get it. All with your help. Or if you don't want to give me your money, that is absolutely fine. 
If you enjoyed this and still want to support the podcast, you can rate review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you're listening to this right now. Or as I mentioned, the socials, you can give me a retweet, you can give it a share, you can tell people about this goddamn podcast. Just tell them. Tell your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, your enemies, your friends, whoever. I don't care. Just get them on board the caged in train. So as always, guys, I have been Petros Patsilivus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. So remember to keep it caged in and I will catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchise, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.